If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardenersworldfair.com. See you there. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Have you got a small garden but can't figure out how to make the layout work? Does your small garden feel cluttered? Are your ambitions bigger than the space itself? If yes to any of these, you're in the right place, and I think we've got some answers for you. Hello, I'm Lucy, and today I'm talking to Monty Don about good design for small gardens. Monty is not only the lead presenter of Gardener's World, he's also made dozens of gardens in his time, famously helping small space gardeners realise their ambitions through his BBC TV series, Big Dreams, Small Spaces. In this episode, we talk through the practical questions you need to ask yourself at the outset, and how to create it all without professional help. But I started by asking him the big question, what's the key to making a small garden just feel right? Well, it's the same key as making a big garden feel right. And and that really um, is asking the right questions because you won't get the right answers until you know what questions to ask. And really, you can break that down. The, the, there are some objective questions that everybody has to ask and, and will will have a finite answer. In other words, there's a correct answer. Uh, but there aren't many of those. And there are subjective questions, which obviously will vary from person to person. And those are just as important. So we'll start with the objective ones, which are, first of all, go outside and and find out where the compass points are. Where's south? Where's north? East, west? Because that really matters when you're designing a garden. And of course, it matters when you're planting and looking after a garden. And It's not something that the average person thinks about when they buy a house or move into a house. You know, is it south-facing? I mean, for a lot of people don't know what south-facing means, and it is confusing. It means that when you're standing, looking in a direction, you are looking towards south. So your back is towards north. And likewise, north is in the direction you're looking at, not the direction behind you. So that's really, really significant and important. The second thing is... To have a really good objective survey of what's there. And I don't mean box ticking. I mean, you know, the neighbours, the trees, um, the noise. Uh, Every single factor that you can notice outside will become, if it isn't already, really significant on how you shape your garden to meet your ends. So, I mean, going back to small gardens... Because the truth is, most people do have small gardens, and therefore it's relevant. Uh, I remember in London, we had a lovely garden, and I absolutely loved it. But it was 100 foot by 30 foot, as, and we, as many gardens were. And we had a really big factory wall at the end of the garden, along one side. And then neighbours with a very low wall next to us. So next to the house, we had 
really close proximity with our neighbours and then absolutely blocked out, which, of course, ideally we would have had it the other way around because it meant all our privacy was at the end of the garden. So straight away we thought, oh, okay, that's something we have to factor in. And that influenced, for instance, where we chose to sit in the evening, which was at the end of the garden because it was more private. And also, you know, how we dealt with the neighbours, because we liked them and we were friendly, but we didn't. We wanted privacy. So we put a trellis up rather than a wall or a fence. So it was a barrier, but it wasn't a completely hostile barrier. There was an element of... But, but I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself now, because start with just being objective. And that doesn't happen in one visit. So when you first get a garden, make a real point, don't do anything. Don't be, you know, whatever you do, don't start planting anything. That's the last thing to do. Just take stock of everything. Where does the robin come and sing in the morning? You know, when you go out in the morning, where's the sun? That's the key thing. And in the middle of the day and in the evening. Um, Where's the, if you can, go out when it's windy. Where does the wind come from? Where does it blow? Wind does strangely. Wind is a really important aspect of garden. You know, what shade is being cast by the neighbours, buildings or trees or, or whatever? Where are the quiet bits? Where is it noisy? So on and so forth. You know, and, and I would say to everybody, six months or even nine months spent taking stock is time well spent. Now, the second thing to do, which is really practical and everybody should do it, is measure your garden with a tape measure and draw it up to plan, to scale. Normally with gardens, you draw 1 to 50 or 1 to 100. Don't do it any smaller than that. 1 to 100 is plenty big enough. 1 to 50, if it, if it is, you know, you need a very big piece of paper if it gets much more than that will fit. And put in everything that is there. Manhole covers, old wonky bits of step that didn't want to be there, um, any resisting trees, plants, shrubs. Don't have to draw. You may never have done it before in your life, but make it accurate. And that does two things. And by the way, this is we're talking about designing a small garden. So this is this is what any designer would do. Any designer. You you survey the site and you draw it up as it is. And and that will do two things. One, it is a really good way to get to know your site. Because it's funny when you measure things, they on plan, it never looks as you think it's going to. It's always wider than you thought or narrower than you thought or or that bit that seemed the same size as this bit it actually is twice as long, you know, and you think can't be and you go and measure it again. It is. So that's really useful. And of course, it's and just to interrupt, it's very rarely straight. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're very lucky if you've actually got straight sides. It very is often a sort of wonky dimension and you've not factored that in. Mark in the compass points. So all you have to do is mark in north. And, and that will give you great intimacy. It's, a, it's an invaluable exercise in learning about your plot. And you do that, and that now is your blueprint. Everything else you do is overlaid, literally overlaid onto that. So all your plans, your schemes, your dreams, your ideas are done on tracing paper. You buy a pad of high-quality tracing paper, and you literally just lay it over and clip it on, and and then you've got your outline, you can see through the, the basics, and then you the ideas go onto the tracing paper, but the brutal reality is underneath. Those are the objective things to do. The subjective ones, which are just as important, is to ask yourself and whoever you're living with or whatever it is, what do I want? What, what am I doing here? Why, why do I want to make a garden? Because the truth is there are lots of good answers to that, but no one else can tell you. You know, it, it may be that, you know, 
at one end of the spectrum is I want to grow my amazing collection of dahlias. And I, you know, I've, I've got 43 varieties and I, and I want to have 143 and now I've got the space. Right. Or it could be I want somewhere safe for the children to play. It could be I want somewhere to entertain. On weekend, I love going and having my friends around. I want somewhere that is a haven, that is a retreat. Now, all those will have different different results. You, so with a small-ish garden, and I would call 99% of all gardens a small-ish, you are going to be severely limited on what you can achieve. So you need to answer that. I mean, fundamentally, it's one, but, but you know, it might be two. It might be somewhere for the children to play and for the grown-ups to, to entertain, or it might be I really want to grow some something edible, some fruit and some herbs and some veg, and I also, you know, love sitting in the evening with a glass of something surrounded by lovely scents or whatever. So once you've asked the, the right question and that's the key, and you've, you've answered it yourself, that's going to really influence how you design your garden. There's a lot in there for people to take on board, whether it's uh, the daunting nature of, of recording the space that you've got. That's, that's quite a big thing for people who've never done that. So just, just to touch on that briefly, can you give any shortcuts or tips? How do you tackle it when you've, if you've never done that before? Okay, there are two things to, to, to do if you know done it for. One is to understand the principles of triangulation, which sounds like maths homework, but basically it means m- measuring a point in relationship to two other points. When you're when you're drawing a plan up, if you've never done it before, it floats. It has no fixed plan of reference. Now, obviously, the smaller the garden, the easier that is. So, one of the things you do is work off the house. You know where the house is. You can draw that in, you measure it, and you draw the door, and you draw the window, you know, whatever it might be, and the side alley if there is one, and so on and so forth. You get all that in accurately, and then you measure off at right angles from it. So if you measure off at right angles from the side of the house, let's say, and and you know it's right angles because, you know, you see when you hit something, you can then mark whatever you hit, and it could be, you know, it could be a bush, it could be a manhole cover, it could be a step, anything. You mark that. You know where that object is in relationship to the house. If, on the other hand, you don't have a fixed measurable something to measure off, what you do is you, you say you have a tree in the middle of a lawn. You mark the tree, then you go to something else and you, and you mark that and you measure that. Then you take another point separate from the tree and take that and then back to the tree and because all three will have a measurement there will be three measurements all three will be accurate in relationship to each other i mean i'm not a very good maths teacher but but once you work it out once you understand that it's really simple it just means basically everything has to be measured against two things not one thing and actually, once you do it, it's really pleasing. There's a sort of lo- there's a, there's enormous logic to it. But um, look, we're sort of diving into practicalities. We'll come on to those in a little bit. But I think one of the one of the really creative parts is just thinking about those subjective points that you made. So let's 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 go back to your you know your first garden in London. It was a, what a small city plot, as you said. You've said it was one of the things, one of the few things that made city living tolerable. What, 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 did, what, did it give, what did it give you and, and, and how did that take shape? To put it in the context, we were incredibly busy um, and young and gadding about. So the garden was an absolute, both a retreat, retreat implies that we were running away from it, but it was as different from that world as possible. It was really, so we went out the back door and left that life behind. And that was fashion and 
craziness. That was and... fashion, and it was yeah, Milan and New York and Paris and London, and you know we had shop, we had buyers coming, and it was it was the opposite of of the gentleness of a garden. So for us, it was really important that the garden a was very enclosed. Uh, so we had high walls everywhere and high trellises, and we you, we climbed up honeysuckle, roses, wisteria, clematis. We built, and also we really wanted privacy. That was very important to us uh, for both personal, in so much that we're people who like to be private. We didn't want to share our garden with people we hadn't invited in. Now, actually, I think it's worth pointing out. I think there's a really important difference between front and back gardens glossing over the fact that so many front gardens are used as car parks, but let's assume they're gardens. They are always semi-public. You know, they're, they're liminal spaces. They are the that interface between the absolute public, which is the street, and the absolute private, which is behind your front door. And, the, and, and when you're designing it, you have to bear that in mind so that you almost invite people to look in, but at the same time not come in if they're uninvited. So, and, and that's quite an interesting design thing to do. But the back garden, I think, is as private as anywhere in your house. You know, it's, it's a private space. So, but in a city, obviously, the chances of being overlooked are very great. So you have to decide, well, what bits of it matter to me? You know, does it matter? Do I mind being overlooked if I'm walking down the end of the garden, down a path? Do I mind being overlooked if I'm sort of chatting outside the back door? Or... But do I mind if I'm eating eating outside with friends? Do I mind if I'm just having a very quiet cup of tea before going to work? And ah, by the way, I've couched those questions. Obviously, the, what the answers are to me. And so you have to create those spaces. Now, a, a good example is our London Garden. Right outside the back door was we could never make really private. So actually, that was the space where we used, we, we paved it and we had beds. We had our herbs there. We had uh, our potting table. We didn't have a potting shed, but we had a table for all our potting. It's where, when Adam was born and he was a little baby and child, where he played, so he was near the back door and we could see. And then we had a wall across the garden, which we built, with a gate that, that we built. So when we went through into that space, it became private. So we ate right at the end of the garden, as far away from the house as you could get in our garden, because it was the most private area, and also because that's where the evening sun went. So we worked out that we wanted to eat in the evening and we didn't want to share that occasion with anyone else that we hadn't invited. And that worked for us. But obviously, conventionally, a lot of people might think if they're starting out, well, obviously you eat outside the back door and it's a paved area. But, but you need to think those things through. And it may well be that some people love having their neighbours around them and they want to you know, have a glass of beer and chat over the garden fence. That's absolutely fine, but you need to answer that question. And likewise, you know, if you're working out, for us, the garden was a treat, it was a haven, we wanted, it was very, very heavily planted. We didn't have a lawn, for example. We had a paved area outside, and we had beds in, and, uh, and what have you, and then we had an, a path, and either side of the path was entirely border, right to another paved area at the end, which was completely surrounded by planting. And so for us, that created the sense of being lost in colour and scent. And, and, and we made a decision not to grow any vegetables, even though I've always been a very keen vegetable grower, because of lead levels in London and because we had limited space. And actually, London in the 1980s had very good vegetable markets. So we could buy very good vegetables and we've accepted that was something we couldn't do and have these other things. 
You know, if we wanted to do that, we'd have to get an allotment. The point being is we wanted a retreat. So that influenced everything. It influenced how we planted, how we laid the garden out, how we divided it up. The actual planting was entirely dictated by our personal preferences of how we used the garden rather than the plants that we loved. And in that ideal world, you would have had two or three more things in that space. But, you know, you consciously, by Sandsling's, decided no lawn, no veg. We just can't make it work. Because presumably every garden has its limitations, but particularly for a small garden. Yeah, Longmeadow is two acres. And there are loads of things I'd like to do that I can't. You know, it's not big enough. As you know, we don't have a big lawn. We don't have any lawn, really. Uh, We don't, you know, there's loads more I'd like to do. There aren't many gardens smaller than about five acres that do everything they want to do. It's completely realistic to cut your cloth. And I would say that the more focused you are, the more you really know what you want, the more likely you are to get it from your garden. And, And if you... If you just say, well, I don't know, I just want it to be nice, you know, which is completely honourable. I mean, we all feel that fundamentally. You're starting from the wrong place because niceness or enjoyment or pleasure is a result of something. It's never the goal. It can't be because gardens are too malleable for that. They're too too fluid to, to, to hold that as a concept. Work out the practicalities of, of works for you and then create around it. So, for example, if we had this thing where we had an area outside the back door with a perfectly good raised beds for herbs, that was our edible thing. And it was near the kitchen and we grew lots of herbs and it was great. And we also had a bench, we did our potting and it was a sort of semi-workspace. Then you went through the, the gate into a totally different thing and a straight path because Either side you were surrounded by plants, but it was actually going somewhere. It was going to this seating area at the end that was very definite and it had a, it was a destination. If, on the other hand, the planting just sort of ended either at a seat or a little bower or whatever, we might have made the path curving to delay that process, to slow it all down, and to make the process of walking as the end, the real point of the garden walking through the plants. And there are lots of people I know who would have said, yes, that's what I want. That's what will give me pleasure. Bit of deadheading, seeing how things are going, stopping to smell that. Oh, look, you know, that's opened while I was at work. All that business. And either a gentle curve or even a a genuinely windy sort of path, which you can do in a small garden, um, does that. Whereas a straight path always leads you on. Now, that's just very basic design you know, manipulating paths. And then in the same way with barriers, if you have a long, thin garden, your eye just shoots down to the end. It's a funnel. And if you want that to happen, that's fine. You know, so for example, um, again, going back to Longmeadow, the lime walk or the long walk are long and narrow. And the idea idea is, is your eye just shoots down and it feels almost like a tunnel. You're, You're going down. And the truth is, the reason for that is because the site is long and narrow. And by having the eye going across it, it makes that seem much longer. And you very often have something at the end as well. You very often have a lovely urn or something. But but in a smaller garden, that's very often... You do, it the other, you do it the other way around. So in a smaller garden, by breaking it into smaller areas, you actually make it seem much bigger. It's counterintuitive, so you isn't go it? From one, yeah, it is. It's a completely counterintuitive. And there's another asset, which we'll, in fact we'll come to in a minute. So, so by dividing it across and... 
I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for designing a garden and dividing it into squares. So if your garden's 30 foot wide and 100 foot long, you could have three separate spaces, each 30 foot square. They're small, but they're, they're completely coherent. And you can do that with hedging. You can do it. We built a wall. I mean, hugely extravagant now. Is, is, but, but you can build walls. You can put up trellis. You could do it with, with grasses. You could do it with bamboos. You, you know, the, it doesn't have to be a permanent division. There are lots of ways of doing that. The other thing that is one of those curious counterintuitive design facts is the smaller the garden, the bigger the plants should be. There is nothing that makes a garden seem small than lots of small plants. It's a terrible trap that people fall into, isn't it? The fussiness of one of this and one of that. I've only got a small garden, so I'll just buy the one. So tell us your solution to that. Well, I, I, there are two ways of doing it. Is one is to have one or two key plants, preferably good-sized specimens. So it could be a shrub, could even be a small tree, could be a big pot. Depends how small your garden is, if it's very small. I mean, I remember visiting years ago, God, really years ago, 30 years ago or more, filming a garden in Fulham. And it was really small, tiny, but it had an enormous sort of Grecian olive urn in it. And it was the first time I'd really seen that done. And it was brilliant because immediately it felt spacious because of this big object. So you can either have do it with one, depending how big the garden is, one, two or three really substantials. It could be a maple, it could be a, a, a pot, it could be, a, could be anything that's really good. Or you limit your plants to really, it could be as little as about five or six different plants and do them in clumps and groups. So they are substantial planting. So instead of planting one, you plant three or five, or even seven. There's a great Spanish designer, one of my garden design heroes, called Fernando Carrancho, who is, he lives in Madrid. And I went to his garden when we did 80 gardens. Uh, and I went to a garden of his in, the, in Greece when we did Adriatic gardens. And I remember him saying that no garden needs more than seven plants. And of course, what he didn't mean, he didn't mean that you should only have seven. What he said is it's possible to make any garden look good with just seven plants. Because you would, and, and he was referring to great drifts and, and sort of cloud hedging and, and, and areas in his own garden, for example, which was very low maintenance because he was a busy man and, and what have you. You know, he, he, would, he would plant great sort of waves and drifts of, of box and myrtle and, and, and then cloud prune them. And they only had to be cut once or twice a year and that was it and they looked fantastic. And then maybe just spots of colour. He would just have sort of moments of colour that he would get in. And I think that you don't have to take that literally. No one's, you know, seven is not a magic number. But the principle you really do have to take to heart is small spaces need editing. It's this rule that applies to writing. It applies to gardens is edit, edit. And then when you think you can't edit anymore, edit it again. Personally, I find having a restrictive palette very, very helpful when it comes to design. I mean, we've, all, we've talked about structure almost entirely and not about planting for colour or fragrance or texture. When it comes to planting colour, if you have a small garden, you've got to have some colour parameters. They don't have to be restrictions. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. You've just got to think, again, it goes back to the same thing. What do I want? Am I, do I want freshness? Do I want intensity? Do I want to be enlivened? Or do I want to be calmed down? Do I want the colour to, to look best in the morning? 
or in the evening. You know, because light affects colour hugely. Morning light makes colours feel brighter, sharper, a bit more brittle. Pastel shades can look very good in morning light because it lifts them a little bit without losing the softness of the pastel colour. Whereas in evening light, western light, which is much sort of murkier and diffused, really rich colours look good. Whereas in morning light, they actually look rather harsh. They, 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 they can lose their depth but not gain the kind of soft brightness that you can get from pastel colours. So in principle, if you have two sides to a garden facing east and west, your richer colours should be on the west-facing side and your softer colours on the uh, east-facing side. In practice, that would look a bit weird because it would be very split, you know, so, so you combine the two. But I think in terms of mood, having a colour palette actually makes planting easier, more fun, and, it, and it, it, it adds focus. It's like a meal. You know, you don't have a bit of Chinese and a bit of Indian and a bit of Italian. Well, you actually do in some restaurants you go to. You know, I can't bear fusion food. It's just a sort of mishmash. I personally prefer to honour at least per dish a cuisine. And all rules are made to be broken. You know, no one's saying it's, it's not a kind of bad taste thing. It's just a guide. So, for example, let's take the writing garden. You say it's a white garden. It is a white garden. But, but as I've written many times, all white gardens are really green gardens, touched by white. And pure white is a very, very difficult colour in a garden. Almost impossible. Because it, it, it's flat, it's dead, it's, it, it's, and what you want from colour is subtlety and depth. So slightly off-white, I mean, the slightest touch of yellow or, or green or blue or pink makes white seem whiter. Well, that's a little design trick you learn. Now, you can do that two ways. You can either choose plants that have that inherent in them, or you can have some very pale pink plants with some very white plants. So the whole thing is diffused by the conjunction. That also works. Or you use your foliage. You have white flowers, but you also have lots of different greens going on, and that subtly diffuses it. It becomes an exercise in care and subtlety and and real discrimination rather than say oh no i'm not i'm not doing blues here you know so blues are out so the, you know and, and along there though we have the jewel garden which obviously is jewel colors and we've experimented with that over the years i mean when we started we had white to represent crystal well it just looked terrible it didn't work at all and then we had lots of silver and gold and bronze and we still do a bit but Again, it got a little bit dominant, and now most of those colours have gone to the grass borders, and they're in there. We found, for example, that in June and early July, the blues and the purples and the mauves are much brighter. They're much, much lighter. Whereas once you get to late July, August, September, the colours get much richer. The same colours in different plants get much richer and deeper. So there's a seasonal variation as well. And as a designer, you have to work with that. Now, now if I was a novice listening to this, I think, oh, my God, I'm giving up. You know, I, 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 this is a PhD and we haven't even begun. So I don't want it to sound intimidating. This is something that happens slowly. You come to it slowly. And the planting, I always feel the planting is the easiest bit because it's the, the most malleable. You can change planting. You can get fed up with it. You can think it's a bad idea. You can look out the window one morning and say, do you know what? I'm not enjoying this anymore. I'm going to change the whole thing. And in a small garden, that's the great liberty. 
you know, it's the work of an hour to dig everything up and the work of an hour to plant a whole new batch of plants. And probably 100 quid will do the job. You know, and 100 quid once every three or four years is not, is within most people's budget. But it's just getting the bones right. Everything can be laid on top. Everything can be laid on top. If you get the bones right, A, visually, because, you know, let's go back to basics. We talked about orientation. We talked about neighbours. It's no good having something that would work on a new build, say, uh, which is open. It has no other buildings around it other than your neighbours. And let's say there are no neighbours out the back. It's almost to go, as some new builds, so they go out to fields. That's going to be very different to our Hackney Garden, which looked out onto tall houses at the back and houses all around. And as I say, this, this factory building, that actually was wonderful. It was fantastic. West-facing, 30-foot-high wall. Fantastic. You know, the, 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 the same idea. If, if we had lived in that other building, we would have had to have made a different garden, even though we would have wanted the same kind of things. Because you're you're inside, are you inward looking? Are you closing in on yourself? Or are you looking out? Well, and, and, a bit know. of both. I, th- I think, you know, there's this phrase that gardeners use, borrowed landscape. And all that means is that you deliberately include what is not in your garden as a visual part of your garden. So you, you make sure you can see, I don't know, um, it, it could be a tree on the horizon. It could be a clock tower, you know, whatever it it might be, the borrowed landscape enlarges your garden. And obviously, if you're lucky enough to have a really good tree on a little hillock, say, in the distance, and you have a, what you do is you close off everything around it, except for that little bit of view. And that makes the garden seem much bigger. That tree then becomes part of your garden, even though it could be half a mile away. So that's that trick. But the point is, is that no garden is independent of its surrounding landscape. You know, we are, it it could even be sound. I mean, even here at Longmeadow, for example, we have a road that we can hear. I can't change that. I can can baffle it a little bit with trees and things, but not much. We have fields around us. We have neighbours on one side and then fields on three sides, but at least one, if not sort of one and a half of those fields, flood, for example. And that affects us. On my last garden, the one after London, we had a fantastic view across a broad plain to the Black Mountains. Well, that clearly was a really important part of the garden. So you made sure that, that the, you had vantage points, you had seats where you could, you could see it and, and enjoy it, and you didn't plant in any way to block it. But it's a great point you make about the soundscape of a garden, because, again, with so many people in a city... You know, I think the average size small garden or average size garden in the UK is size half the size of a tennis court. So your neighbours are just all around you, your your city streets and so on. How do you enclose that? How do you kind of bring the sound in into yourself? There are two ways with sound. I mean, baffling sound is is a a factor of density. So, for example, uh, you can either have a very thick layer of of trees and foam, or you can have lead, which is which is denser, and do it. But essentially, you can't get around that. You, you you, but you can, you can psychologically baffle it. So, for example, if you screen it visually and muffle it a little bit with plants, you can you know. So so a trellis. I, I mean, I have to say that, you know, this this is a delicate area because. 
good fences make good neighbours. And uh, what you want is to define your territory. We're all very territorial with fences or walls or whatever it might be. But at the same time, the, the law says you can't have an evergreen hedge that is maintained at higher than two metres. So it might grow a bit before, but you have to be cut it down on a regular basis. Uh, actually, a deciduous hedge can be as tall as you like. There's nothing stopping deciduous hedge. But on the other hand, if it grows over into your neighbour's line, they can cut it back in line with their territory. Also, good neighbours, you don't want to cut off too much light. I mean, there's there's an element of hedges cutting off light, but uh, to deliberately cut light off from your neighbours is pretty uh, unneighbourly. So, and you want to be on talking, it's always better to be on friendly terms. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of negotiating to be done, either spoken or unspoken. But you, you, trellises are good because they are not solid, but you can grow things up that become solid for, say, some of the year, whether it be a sort of, for example, a group three clematis, and now we're into haughty speak. These are the late flowering clematis with small flowers that flower from roughly July through till October. But you prune them down to the ground in spring. It's almost a statement of saying, I'm not blocking you out. I'm not being aggressive. This is a temporary thing. And actually, by the way, you're going to enjoy the flowers too. You're going to see them as well. You can put up a thick hedge, and that does restrict things. You can, you, all planting, all sort of will muffle sound to a degree. But, I mean, what we found is there are some things that, that you, you really can't deal with i mean if someone is very very or usually it's an animal a barking dog or something like that and you know about those <laughs> yeah i know about those in the end you have to tolerate some sound it's there are very, no, very few gardens in this world that are absolutely quiet but i think about the paradise garden and the way that you've got that lovely quiet burbling rill but it's there yeah and you know on yeah. a, of, well, a, of, of a quiet evening uh you know you can hear the sound and you're brought inward, I think, by that, aren't you? I mean, water. So water does give people the opportunity to maybe bring the focus closer to them, and that's something that you've you've done, and you've probably seen in other gardens. You can create distracting sounds. You can create positive sounds. They actually, as you were making the point, they don't have to be very loud to work. So a bubbling dish is basically what we have in the paradise garden uh, a little fountain that goes up into a cup and overspills and then splashes down you can create i mean I've, I've helped people with gardens where they actually have a stream running an artificial with a pump that pumps it around so you have the water moving down the stream that is very good and it's a very good way because what it does it doesn't stop the outside sound but it actually distances it and you focus on the immediate sound that's there i mean on a slightly more esoteric level, by planting heavily with shrubs, maybe some small trees, you encourage birds. And birdsong, your birdsong, which everybody benefits because they're not your birds, that's for sure, is really powerful. I mean, it, it, it's, you'll know from your visits to Longmeadow that, that but it's really loud <laughs> and, 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 and a really important part of the soundscape of the garden. And you can do a lot to encourage that. Yeah, and it's not just a soundtrack to the program. It really is. It really is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got a lot of trees. So, and that brings us on, I think, to to something that people are really concerned about: trees in small gardens. How do you reassure people that a tree is a good thing? I mean, I'm 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 presupposing here a tree for you in a small garden is absolutely essential. I, I would I would see that, but you, it's about choices, isn't it? How would you go about choosing the right thing? They are always a good thing in any garden, and and if you for 
any reason think it's a bad thing, it's simply because you're choosing the wrong tree. Let's just be clear what a tree is. I mean, it, it is that a tree has a single stem by and large, although you, you can create trees that have multi-stems, but, but, but essentially they are a, a, a single stem with, with branches. Now, that could be a miniature maple. It could be a, could be a dwarf conifer. Um, it could be an oak tree growing, you know, a thousand-year-old oak tree growing a huge, or actually they're, they're taller trees, it could be. A, but there are plenty of trees that will remain, that when they're mature are quite small. My great favourite small garden tree are crab apples because there are a huge amount to choose from. Um, some are really very small. Some grow to a really quite reasonable size, but they never get big. The biggest are small. And uh, my absolute favourite, which is, I think, probably one of my favourite trees at Longmeadow, is Comtesse de Paris, which is just a magnificent tree. But Everest is a really good tree. There are lots. There are lots and lots. And they give you blossom and they give you foliage and they give somewhere for birds to nest and land and they give you fruit, which either you can eat or you can just look at and they look great and the birds can eat if you don't eat them. And they perform structure. Height is really important in a garden. And... You know, a light tree, it doesn't have to be dense. It can be quite light and open. You can do what the Japanese do, which is to prune them really quite quite sort of radically so they're open and, and they become works of art in themselves. You can have trees that are fastidious, which means they grow columnar, very, very narrow. Fastidious trees are really good in a, in a limited space. You can put them in a border, you can put them at, at the end of a path, as you were saying, as a, as a, a, a site. For, if you've got a straight path, it ends at that. We've got, we planted a fastidious hornbeam at the end of the cricket pitch. It's just beginning to come into its own now and sort of hold its own. But it'll never get wider than about, well, at the very, very biggest, about a metre, however tall it grows. Uh, and the, the finally, you can prune trees. You know, trees trees can be pruned. I've got apple trees in the cottage garden, which I'm keeping, well, the tallest it must be about, I don't know, 10 foot? Quite quite small, you know, bold and they're cut back. And yet I've got apple trees in the orchard, which were really quite sizable trees. You can do this. Yeah, so, so fight the fear. And it also, though, gives you shade, which in a city garden can absolutely be what you need in the middle of summer. You know, we often fear shade, but actually that's what we have in so many small gardens. So again, something to embrace positively. Yeah, I think the thing to remember, you know, it's always whenever I fly in anywhere, I always sit on a window seat and I'm looking at the gardens uh, and I love it on a clear day looking down. Fly in over London and you're flying in over woodland with some houses pushed in on it. All those back gardens are to a bird, just, just woodland. It's all the trees and the shrubs and, you know, with, opening, with, with openings and glades. And embrace that is actually uh, a garden is comprised of shade-forming things, be they trees, shrubs. You know, even, even two plants together, one will always shade the other. To a degree, and and most plants like a degree of shade. Most people like a degree of shade, and and I think that it's one of the sort of very elementary errors to think of shade as bad, sun as good. I mean, when you're growing plant climbers, for example, it's as difficult to find plants to grow well on a south-facing wall as it is on a north-facing wall. There are some that will do very well 
you know, wisteria will love it. Jasmine will love it. Um, there are not many roses that like a south-facing wall. And there are most clematis will grow on a north-facing wall. There are, there are lots of the, you know, we get there are there are quite a few plants that will embrace that. Actually, many novice gardeners will be surprised to find that it's the west-facing wall that is the prize, because there is some shade early in the morning. You know, for for a third of the day, it doesn't get much sun at all. But then from midday onwards, when the sun has warmed up and it's come round and it's it gets all the warm sun at the end of the day. Uh, and that is tends to be where you get certainly the widest range of plants you can grow. And that, that applies throughout the garden. Burning unfiltered sun is fine, and there are plenty of plants that you can grow, but they're limited. From our very beginning of this conversation, we're talking about, and everything, we're talking about limits, parameters. Limit your planting, limit your aspirations, limit your, you know, your time. Those limits are the creative limits. And there is no garden in this world that isn't limited by a whole set of the, the type of soil you have, you know, the money you have, the space you have, the time you have, the aspects, what you want from a garden, who's using it. You know, for instance, when my kids were growing up, there was a stage of about 10 years when what they wanted was to, more than anything else was to ride their bikes around the garden. Now, obviously, from, you know, as a gardener, that, that's bad news. That's not what you want. But you have to embrace that. So hence you have long paths where they could race down and you say, okay, you can ride your bikes, you can make a mess in what is now the orchard. And we, you know, we remember making earth ramps and all that sort of stuff. But you can't ride them through this bit here. There were limits. And 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 you I had to give and they well, they were supposed to give. They didn't, hey, of course. Kids. <laughs> but, but yeah. What's the one key point, you know, for anyone with a small garden, do you think, to take away from all the ideas that we've just been talking about? Work out when you want to sit privately in the garden, either to eat or to drink or to think or whatever, the time of day and, and maybe even the time of week, and create it around that and the sun and how you want to use that. So do you want to sit in blazing sunshine and sunbed, say? You know, some, for some people that might be important. Do you want to, you know, do you love the idea of Sunday lunches outside in the garden? Which, which therefore you're going to need shade? Or is it, as it was for us, in the evening? Do you want to sit as the light falls and sit outside and create that space however you want it, by paving or decking or whatever it is? You know, it maybe you want fire pit. It maybe you want a nice big table. You want, maybe you want a fixed permanent outdoor cooking kitchen. You might, it might just be, a, I mean, it could just be one seat surrounded by plants. Create that space where it is, and then plant around it. So it could be for fragrance, it could be for colour, whatever it is for you. And then in a small garden, the rest of the garden ripples out from that. That's the key, because you'll use that. The garden then becomes, becomes an extension of your life and works around you and your life, rather than you fitting into the garden. Of course, the other element is if there are two of you, one may want one thing and another may want another. <laughs> so you may have to compromise, you know, you may have to have two bits of the garden. If one of you is desperate to grow some vegetables and the other not interested at all but really wants to go, well, and, and for example, if you do want to grow vegetables, they have to have a sunny site. You can't grow good vegetables in shade. They don't have to have constant shade, but they have to have some sun. And, and that's going to affect it, you know. These are lessons in life. Never mind garden design. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but but I think I mean it's it's all about starting with you and working outwards, combining that with the hard reality of what is actually there. You need to do that. You need to do, as I said, right at the beginning. Get all that out of the way. The amount of times I've been, when we were doing big dreams, for example, I go to people and I'd say, you know, t- describe your garden to me. I say, okay, now we're going to measure it up and draw it. And what you've just described doesn't look anything like the drawing. One of these is wrong, and it's not the drawing. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and that's a really important thing. But then it's all about how you want to use it. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>